Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome as our guest for this podcast, Dr. Alan Wells. Dr. Wells is head of cell biology at the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. He's also vice chair in the Thomas J. Gill, the third professor in the Department of Pathology. Dr. Wells, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you. I know that you have uh, many interests that uh, perhaps is the cover of several podcasts, but perhaps in terms of focusing on a number of items today, we could discuss your pioneering work in wound healing and also your studies related to cancer. So perhaps with that as an introduction, uh, where would you like to begin? Well, those two sound relatively disparate, but they all grow out of our same basic cell process interest, the question of how and why cells move when dictated by their environment, and what is good about it, and what is the uh, negative side of the signal cell movement. So our lab has always approached this question in a holistic manner, looking at cell movement as a biophysical process governed by biochemical signals in the cell as dictated by the communication between the cell and its neighbors. And from there, a number of projects have flowed. The two that we've been focusing on have, are the biologic, the physiologic, and the pathophysiologic implications. The first is in wound repair, which is an organogenic uh, response, which is critically important for the survival of any animal, and we are animals. And the second aspect, as you mentioned, tumor dissemination and invasion is also regulated at a certain level by cell motility. If the cells don't move from the original tumor, they won't metastasize, and it is relatively straightforward to deal with a localized tumor. It's really those that migrate away, escape from their local environment that causes the morbidity from uh, cancer. So while they sound separate, they really come from the same basic program of how do cells respond to their environment, what is the social context, and like every social interaction, there's a good side and a bad side to it. Very interesting. We just had one of our prior guests, uh, Dr. Lagasse, who uh, shared some thoughts about uh, cancer stem cells. Uh, in terms of your work on cell motility, does this relate to all cells or cancer stem cells, or how does that fit, fit well, together? Well, it's interesting that you uh, mention Eric, because Eric and I are now embarking on a joint project to look somewhat specifically at that question. So in any tumor mass of carcinomas, your generalized tumors of the breast, prostate, lung, liver, colon, the majority of the cancers that afflict us, that we already know only a fraction of those cells are active at any one point, both growing and have the ability to migrate out and of those that have the ability to migrate out, only a very small number has the ability to set up home in a distant, hostile environment with a different milieu and different signals than normally is seen where they develop. 
And so we're looking at which cells are they exactly? Are they the so-called cancer stem cells, which are yet to be defined? Are they a larger set that might not be the cancer stem cell at the original site, but become a founding cell at the metastatic site? And what is it about that ability to move out, find a home, settle in, and eventually grow that makes these cells special? And in particular, once we know what makes them special, we'll have a handle on how we might target them. Because currently, it's really the metastatic foci, not the original tumor, that confound our ability to treat and control cancer. And as a sort of downer note, tumors in the metastatic niche appear to be more resistant to treatment than the original tumors. And that might be either the signals they get from there that we'll be looking at, or the nature of the cell that goes there and has this ability to grow in an otherwise hostile environment. Now, I know that you are internationally recognized for the uh, science that you've uh, been responsible for uh, developing, but I think many of our listeners are also interested in what the ultimate applications of some of this science is. So if we go back to wound healing, for example, can you give us just perhaps a bit of insight into where this uh, pioneering science might may lead us in the future? Well, <clears throat> wound healing can be conceived of as many ways, with our emphasis on communication between the cells and the cells and their environment and the role that cell migration plays. We see it as a major process in wound healing and one that often goes awry both in wounds that fail to heal and in wounds that fail to stop healing and set up a scar which is often equally devastating. And over the years we have mapped a number of signals and processes in the cell, molecules in the cell that regulate these events to both an kickstart wound healing and stop wound healing. And in conjunction with many others, we have now moved on to the process of seeing if we can control wound healing, both by triggering signals at the right time, and I've had a long ongoing collaboration with Linda Griffith at MIT of patterning surfaces with the right number of minimal factors to allow the cells of the wound bed, the fibroblasts, the mesenchymal stem cells that give rise to the structures, the endothelial cells, to pattern them to both proliferate and migrate in a way that we could direct. And then with Eric Beckman of chemical engineering at University of Pittsburgh have taken a low-tech approach to develop a gel that would form in the wound that would have these factors and dictate for wounds that don't heal the cells coming in and reformulating the skin bed and also to have defenses in that gel that prevents infection which is one of the major issues with wounds that don't heal and 
is that of infection. In addition, the next step is to go with these types of approaches where we engineer a, sep a smart biologic and place it in the body is to prevent excessive scarring because we've spent a lot of our time focusing on the signals that stop the wound healing. So if I could repeat in my words what I think you just told us, that uh, you see in the future the ability by gene or cell control to minimize scarring and promote healing, is that correct? Yes, and the form we'd like it to take is almost a toothpaste tube where you squirt into a wound and it fills the wound and it's not even by genetic engineering, it's by engineering of the signals that a cell normally sees or would see during normal physiologic healing and regeneration to direct those wounds that are compromised to use the body's own natural capabilities to then grow in and replace that gel with normal skin. So what I see is the ultimate application is almost a toothpaste tube in which when you get a wound you can squirt that into even a deep wound and it will fill that and the gel will contain not genetic engineering but engineering of natural signals that the cell sees in a wound that normally regenerates or even during the original development of the skin that will allow those wounds that are compromised to respond to those signals to regenerate the wound. So it's a product that we've been working towards that would incorporate the signals in a series of start, continue, and stop wound healing in the right sequence to regenerate the skin. And we've understood a a significant portion of the signals that can control it, obviously not all of the ones that normally work, and have, through others, come across a number of wonderful compounds that work in the body and are now trying to build towards that actual goal of a real product that can be readily applied. I know that many of our listeners are always inquiring as to uh, when might this be available, at least in the clinical assessment uh, phase, uh, what's the uh, time frame in this particular case? Three well, to five years? or Well, we're looking at a uh, number of situations that would, that dictate the time frame. From a scientific perspective, we have a number of preclinical issues to clear, and of course one has to talk about the toxicity and regulatory environment, but if all things move for, forward with uh, our partners to develop this in the proper manner, something like this could be available in a three to five year time frame. Very interesting. I know there certainly would be some military applications for this, but uh, certainly uh, civilian applications would be, I think, equally important for severe wounds, highway wounds, and cases where perhaps paramedics could use this type of technology? Well, this is not so much for life-threatening wounds, but uh, wounds that are infected, gapping, scarring wounds. 
And it's interesting that you mentioned the military because the initial funding for these ideas came out of National Tissue Engineering Center, which was funded through the Department of Defense. Specifically, this project dealt with the fact of deep superficial wounds that were not life-threatening but hindered the ability of those soldiers to carry out their mission. Obviously, that is readily applicable to non-military situations and the civilian population where in wound infections, particularly out while working or in recreation, is a not insignificant portion of what uh, physicians see at the community or walk in in the ER. And so we are aiming that this be applicable to real-time use at the site of injury. We've uh, had uh, many of our prior guests on this podcast uh, who have uh, shared with us their work in tissue engineering. Uh, in your particular case, the focus seems to be on cellular control and cellular signaling. Where do you see these uh, two technologies merging, or, or do they merge? Well, cells in the human are in a social communication with the rest of the body. And one can control the behavior and ultimate fate of a cell either by going in internally and tinkering with it, such as in genetic engineering, or in a more, as I see it, plastic environment by altering the various signals to channel the cell to do what one wants. And due to the nature of multiple levels of control and wanting to change cells' behavior throughout a complex process like wound healing, one has the ability to fine-tune for the outcome, which I feel is one of the real future areas of emphasis of tissue engineering in that you're direct engineering the cells to respond to different cues on the outside, having done work to be able to predict the responses of the cell in unison attacking not just one cell type but multiple cell type by different cues at different quantitative levels. So it's really central to regenerative medicine and tissue engineering is the control of cells and tissues by their external signals. Another area that we only touched on briefly is the use of engineered complex organs outside of the person in order to study and learn about processes in the body. So we are using tissue engineering not to build in the tumor metastasis studies, not to build better metastases. We have enough trouble with the ones we have already but to be able to understand what are the fundamental aberrant functions or what goes wrong in the cell in our mind that allows it to set up a metastatic focus, grow and avoid therapy. This is probably a good segue into your uh, cancer uh, interests and activities. I recall that recently you, you published a paper on some findings related to breast cancer. Yes, yes. Um, we have focused 
on breast and prostate cancer as they share many similarities and afflict combined over a half million Americans every year, where the real danger from these cancers are the spread away from the original site. Yes, the dealing with the original site is a major hurdle to overcome, but death ensues from when these tumors disseminate and set up shop elsewhere. And so we've been looking at that process by using a tissue-engineered model of human organs where these cells metastasize to. And a common organ where most tumors metastasize to is the liver. And we have been fortunate enough to work with pioneers who have engineered miniature livers outside of the human body that we have been able to show can serve as the site for metastatic seeding of these tumors. And so we're using tissue engineering and regenerative medicine in a quite a different manner than others to use it as a test bed currently for understanding what goes wrong, but eventually, and in short order, for trying to figure out how to develop novel agents against the metastatic nodules. Because currently, the chemotherapies and agents available work best against the primary large tumors, but less well or even not at all against these metastatic foci that are really the ones that will kill you. So I know you have a number of initiatives and a number of collaborators, and uh, this certainly is a common uh, trend that we see amongst all of our guests in terms of uh, multidisciplinary studies. Uh, perhaps you want to maybe elaborate a bit on that particular aspect of your work? Yes. Um, so, we're, for example, where we're taking the tumor metastasis projects is a collaboration with others here at McGowan, such as Eric Lagasse, uh, Jorg Gerlach, who brings an expertise of bioreactors, uh, Donna Stoltz, who brings an expertise about liver, and Linda Griffith, who brings an expertise from MIT about the mechanics of these ex vivo organs in order to build a platform on which we can not only study tumors, but use this to test new drugs for both developing drugs and possibly even for personalizing medicine so that if someone comes to us with a tumor, we can determine not just how that primary tumor will respond, but how likely it has spread and what are the best agents to use after it has spread by setting up a little metastasis in our lab and testing it with drugs a sort of directly personalized approach to one's cancer, though we're really looking at closer to a decade out on that. But even so, that's, uh, that's a fascinating idea in that, uh, as many in the audience knows, that uh, drug trials are extremely expensive and for drug trials related to these types of uh, problems, extremely long term. So that if uh, you have a way to make a more efficient and perhaps a quicker evaluation scheme, that's a, 
seems like an invaluable tool. And often in reviewing why drug trials fail, because the vast majority of them do fail, it's not that they fail because they don't work, it's they fail because they don't work on enough on a large enough fraction of patients with the hope of personalized medicine one is not looking for a magic drug that works in 90 or 100 percent of the patient because as an individual patient you don't care you care what works in you it's to really target what drugs work in which patients so currently if you have a new therapy for breast cancer for metastatic breast cancer where you get a response rate of only about 25% for the usual drugs, and it has a response rate of 10% or 15, that is considered a failure. But these might be 10 women out of 100 who would not have responded to anything else. For them, this might be a highly successful drug. But in today's trial environment, we don't know that. Hopefully in the future, we will get to the situation where we look at individual responses and we can deal with drugs on a patient-by-patient -patient basis and look at success by individuals, not by populations. And that would really open up the world of medicine to a whole panoply of agents that today are considered failures because they don't work on enough patients. And we know cancers are a hodgepodge of many different diseases. And in a strange way, it's unrealistic to expect drugs to work in a majority of, a cancer, of the patients with one cancer type. I hear with increasing frequency references to personalized medicine, and it sounds very exciting. Is is there any, in what area is it perhaps most mature? Is it being used clinically in any place? Well, we've always had a type of personalized medicine, just haven't recognized it as such. But we do, even today, look at patients. One of the ones that's become routine is this predisposition to forming blood clots where we have a laboratory test, a simple laboratory test, to see if you're predisposed to forming clots or not. And those are the patients who, after surgery or if they're mobilized, we treat aggressively to prevent clots versus others we treat differently so as to avoid chances of bleeding. These are the people who run into trouble after long plane trips. It's very common. And so personalized medicine, even on a genetic screening basis, has gone forward um, over the past five to 10 years where even though it's not recognized as such, is very prevalent. The next step is to really individualize the personalized medicine, not only on what you're predisposed to, such as high cholesterol and taking a statin, but to match up the individual and individualized treatments where different drugs, not only are you predisposed to a condition or you have a condition, but where 
identifying different drugs that are best suited to that individual to treat that condition. And so it's becoming more and more mainstream, but that last step of individualizing the patient, their health status or wellness status, and the type of therapies that are best for them, whether they're exercise, behavior, natural product, or therapeutic to that particular person, that's really the next step to really not just personalizing, but individualizing health management. As you indicated earlier, this is uh, perhaps uh, as much as 10 years downstream, but it's certainly a fascinating prospect in terms of how to deal with many challenging uh, medical problems. So I, I commend you and your colleagues for what you're doing in this area. While you're making significant progress, uh, what do you see as your principal impediments to uh, making this a reality? This type of research and driving it forward to completion, to reality that benefits the patients and people in general is always a limitation of people. It's people and imagination that really limits it. And we are facing a major problem in this country now of having adequate numbers of people entering this field, of young trainees, of students. And furthermore, this type of research really doesn't fit in any of the traditional modes of training and education because it's so transdisciplinary across three, four, five different levels of expertise that even the young investigators who come to us are often trained extremely well in one area but do not appreciate the breadth. And this is a challenge. We have here at the McGowan, and I have been fortunate to be uh, involved with the Genesis and ongoing workings of it, a program that is aimed at graduate students and postdocs both entice them into this very promising field and to train them in a unique set of skills that allows them to contribute at the interfaces between traditional disciplines and expertise and really see the potential and the promise because frankly 10 years from now and even 20 years from now after we get past the first initial applications but really hone this and make it an everyday reality, they are going to be the ones who are going to lead the charge. And that are, we call it a cater program. Our cater program is really aimed at creating that next generation of scientists and developers who will be the ones that realize the promise that we, we just see. They're going to be the ones who grasp it and realize it and wrestle it for its full potential. Well, I commend you on that particular en endeavor. I've, uh, I've uh, had the pleasure of talking to some of the uh, students who have participated in the program, and they uh, certainly are very strong advocates of, uh, of what you and your colleagues have organized in that regard. appreciate the opportunity to uh, have this discussion with you and for you to share with our audience the uh, fascinating endeavors that you're pursuing both in terms of basic science as well as your pursuit of uh, clinical applications of same. To conclude this podcast, I'd like to uh, remind our audience that uh, 
We cannot uh, die medical problems via the Internet, but we do encourage your suggestions and comments about these and future podcasts. We can be reached at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. I'd like to uh, thank the McGowan Institute, which uh, sponsors these podcasts. Until we meet again with another guest in two weeks, best wishes to all our listeners. Thank you.